Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Today's scripture is from John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, His slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover, and they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realized that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a moment for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we are gathered now and as we reflect, we come from a diversity of backgrounds, different experiences in our lives. We come to this very moment with different attitudes and emotions. Some of us are joyful, hopeful, anticipating what you might do in our lives. Others of us are exhausted, anxious, afraid, or angry. We come to this moment believing and trusting in you. We're doubtful, skeptical, cynical, wondering if you even exist or if you do, if you really are that good, you really care about us. However we find ourselves right now, as different as we are from one another, help us to see that we're also the same. Each of us is beautifully created in your image deserving of honor, dignity, respect. At the same time, each of us is fractured, broken. We we easily wander. We're beautiful and broken. And in the midst of all our complexity and contradictions, you see us, you know us, and you give yourself to us in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so now we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit, 
that you would teach us in a way that our lives would be transformed, renewed, that you'd wake us up with your grace and send us out to be your very agents of renewal wherever we go. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study through what the Gospel of John is known as calling the signs of Jesus. Signs are important. Last year, my friend Dave Reed and I did the 50-mile bike challenge in Palm Springs. But since it was COVID pandemic craziness, you couldn't do an actual organized race with signs and volunteers who were pointing out the way and watering holes at every 15 miles. And so we had to navigate ourselves and we figured we knew where we would get water, where potentially we could stop for some food. And so we began this 50 mile bike ride with just one water bottle each, expecting to refill it. But at some point on our little maps on the phone, the signs never actually lined up. And we ended up in the wilderness. After 15 miles, there wasn't any more water. We're in the Palm Springs desert, by the way, mind you. No more water. And we just keep thinking, another mile or two, there's going to be a place to get water. And there's not. And then 30 miles. And then 40 miles. Finally, at mile 45, there was a place to get some water and some food. But we missed the signs. And we almost paid a hefty price. Thankfully, we both made it healthily, and we'll never forget that story. So you can fall off on one side of the road if you miss the signs. If you just don't see the signs there, you're going to miss the bigger picture. And it might cost you dearly. But on the other hand, you can fall off if you focus so much on the sign, you miss what it's pointing to. As I was studying for the sermon this week, I was told of an, a city planner who was tasked with the assignment to assuage the congestion in this really old, beautiful, historic, small town with ancient roads. And so this city planner needed to have an engineering team design these signs. The signs had to point the way for the traffic to decongest the streets. But they also had to be beautiful and ornate in their aesthetic. They had to be works of art in themselves to really blend in and add to the beauty of this town. The problem was when the signs were finally installed, traffic goers would pull over to look at the signs and, and just really admire how beautiful they were. And they ended up with more traffic congestion than ever. So you can fall off on the other side by paying so much attention to the sign itself, you miss the very thing that it's pointing to. It's trying to move you somewhere. And here we come to Jesus' second sign which is really appropriate because we're in the season of epiphany. Remember, the word epiphany means revelation. So Jesus gives us a revelation about who God is. When you look at Jesus, you see God. Jesus is what God has to say to the world. What does Jesus teach us about God? And now John's counting the signs for us. Thank you, John the Gospel writer. This is the second sign. Remember, last week was the first sign where there was that young couple who apparently didn't have enough money to buy enough wine for the big crowd that they invited to their party, which in their particular culture would have been a shameful moment because it was incumbent upon them to have hospitality and generosity for all their guests. 
Furthermore, wine is a symbol for the joy of the party, as there are scriptures that say, wine that gladdens the hearts of men. And so this young, poor couple are in a situation where they're out of joy and they're in shame. They are about to become outsiders because of their lack. And Jesus moves toward them, cares for them, and provides for them. Today, we meet this Roman official, a person who would be an emissary of the most powerful empire on the planet, who most likely had access to tremendous resources, incredible stability socially, connections that we couldn't imagine. He kind of had it all, except for that one thing. His boy was sick. But even in the midst of all his affluence and power and resources, he would have been an outsider, at least to the Jewish people, because he represents everything that was crushing and oppressing the Jewish people as the Roman Empire was occupying Jerusalem. So he would have been an outsider in the midst of his overabundance. And the point is, however you find yourself right now, whether you are lacking empty, out of gas, not enough resources, or your resources are overflowing, but you just can't seem to control every aspect of your life. By the way, welcome to the human experience. No matter how you find yourself right now, it means Jesus moves toward you. So in the time we have, let's explore this second sign where Jesus heals the Roman official's son. Jesus is the Son of God, because that's what all these signs are pointing toward, you can have hopeful, buoyant comfort in the midst of the difficulties you're going through right now. You can actually be buoyant, be resilient in the midst of the difficulties you're going through right now. It also means you have an avenue to pursue peace with any person, especially those you can't stand, disagree with, those who have even wronged you. You can pursue peace with them, which will actually set you free. And then third, we'll look at how you actually access that. But first, you can have a buoyant, hopeful comfort in the midst of difficulty. This Roman official, as I mentioned, would have had, he would have been having a good year up until this point. Finances would have been good. Standing in society was good. Reputation was probably good. Matthew and Luke, the other, you know, Matthew in chapter 7 and uh, chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7 shed some light on this as well. Many people believe there are three different perspectives on the same meeting. This was possibly a Roman centurion that would have commanded an army of soldiers. Power, finances, prestige can command an army and yet he cannot command this sickness to leave his boy. This may be the first time he's experiencing powerlessness. Maybe you are successful in business or really astute in education, or you have this talent where you can do things and people recognize you do it better than anybody else, and then you hit that one part of your life, no matter how hard you push or pull, it doesn't seem to budge. 
You know, it's been said that a parent is only as happy as their least happy child. Now, on one hand, I do not recommend kind of codependency and enmeshment as a parent strategy. At the same time, as a father of three boys, I can tell you there's a grain of truth in that, especially if your child is sick, especially if they're gravely ill. And some of you know specifically what that's like. That's where this father is. This dad, like so many parents I've sat with in the waiting room at the hospital, when the doctor comes out and says, it's not looking good. See that that's where this person is right now. He's in the wilderness. He's in the place where it does no good for a loved one to come up and say, there, there, it's all going to be fine. All of these things happen for a reason. He's in the place of lament. He's in the place where the most sane thing you can do is shake your fist at the heavens and say, why is this happening in my life? And Jesus meets him right there. What's the place in your life right now? It just feels like it's so off the rails. You wonder what God is possibly doing, if God's even paying attention. Let this scripture instruct you that he's moving toward you specifically in those areas. Goes right into the wilderness and Jesus tames it. Jesus says to the man, go, your son will live. In some ways, this echoes a passage we read about in the Gospel of Mark, when the disciples, many of whom remember in their previous career, were professional fishermen. They knew how to operate a boat in bad weather, except for this storm is a squall, and it's threatening to take them down. They're losing themselves. Jesus Mark notes, was asleep on the stern with his head on a cushion. He was sound asleep. And the disciples go to him and say the first thing I would say to them, or you might say to him, don't you care that we're about to drown? In the midst of the storms of your life, one of the patterns we take is we go to God and say, do you even care, do you even notice what's happening in my life? And Jesus wakes up, speaks to the storm, and says, be quiet. In fact, in the Greek construction, he speaks to the storm in the voice a parent would speak to their small child when they tell the child to go back to bed. Go to sleep. Be quiet. And you realize in that passage, it says they were all amazed. And part of the piece you begin to put together is in that moment, the word that had become flesh, the power of God that had come and dwelt among us, the very voice that spoke creation into existence and designed the wind and the water, that voice was now commanding it to be quiet. The very voice who spoke creation is now speaking new creation. And that new creation is marked by peace. And so now, back to our story. This father, desperate for his son, who it, it notes several times is to the point of death. And here's that same voice of Jesus. Go. He will live. 
The same voice that gives every breath we take as a gift says your son will continue to breathe. Walks right up to him and does something about it. Now, on one hand, I realize this can give buoyant hope in the midst of difficulty, but also one of the hardest things is when you say, well, I've been praying about this area of my life and it's not changing. And he meets you in that place and says, I even know what it's like to pray prayers and have the answer be no, not now for whatever mysterious reason. The night before Jesus was crucified, he's in Gethsemane praying to the point where the capillaries in his system were exploding and it says he sweat blood. He was under such stress and duress and his prayer was, Father, if there is any other way to win back our children, can we do it that way? And the answer was, no. This is the way. And Jesus agreed and went to it. A God who knows what it's like to be distressed and meets you in your distress. Now, this sign points out this powerful official in the most powerful part of his life. And so part of the irony there is the official who has the role of commanding cannot command but Jesus is actually the royal official on the scene who has authority. Which means you can go to him with anything. It means you can come with him with your smaller requests, your smallest requests. One of the things I've learned as a parent is that when my child comes in and wants to tell me the nitty-gritty details of something I don't care about, That's gold. The best thing I can do as a parent is say, tell me more. Not because I so much am interested in that thing, but because I care about this child and it's important to them. How much more, with my limited patience, could the God of unlimited patience say, I care about every part of your life? On the other hand, you can go with your biggest requests. There's a story that's told of a Roman general who offered to give one of his loyal soldiers anything he asked for. And the soldier asked for half the territory they had just conquered. And the general's advisors went to him and said, who does he think he is to ask for such a reward? And the general said, no, no. On the contrary, I like him because he assumes that I am both wealthy and generous in his request. It's the only way he could have made such a request. You both have the power to do it and the heart to do it. God says, I am both powerful and generous. Come to me with everything. Now, you know what we're talking about here? This is the art of prayer. Prayer is communicating with God. And this is one aspect of prayer. We have lament where we pour out our hearts and all that's gone wrong. We have petition where we ask for the things we need. And the point is you can go to him with everything. But there's also a challenge there in your prayer life that yes, he cares about you and God cares about everyone around you. 
And so Christian friends, one question for you, a diagnostic question. If every prayer you prayed today was answered with the answer yes, what would be different in this world? Would people without enough have more? Would people that are at war have peace? Would people in this neighborhood know the love of God for them? Would the toughest coworker at your office be reconciled to you and have a breakthrough, a miraculous breakthrough? Or would you have a little more money in your bank account, remain healthy, and like your job more? The latter is, there's nothing wrong with it. It's nothing less than that, but it's so much more. This actually invites us to expand the way we pray for our world. Which, by the way, a great action step is, if you want to learn how to do that, join us on Wednesdays at noon for Noon Zoom. Listen in as we structure our prayer around our neighbors, our city, and our world. You can have buoyant, hopeful comfort in the midst of difficulty. You can also have peace with any person. Where do we see this? See, we meet this Roman official, which as I said, Matthew and Luke's Gospels inform us he may have been a Roman centurion if they're talking about the same specific scene. And Luke particularly gives us a little more insight into this person. It says he had done good things for the Jewish people. He had built the synagogue in their local town. This is a person of contradictions. Beautiful and broken. Done some good things and done some bad things. Just like you and me. He'd done some nice things for the Jewish people and he was still enforcing and participating, advancing the system of Roman oppression with force and violence. Can you imagine Jesus looking at this man and all he stood for? Chariots behind him, sword on his belt, armor on his body, the ability to command. And Jesus can look at him as a Jewish man in Palestine and say, you are the oppressor. You are a, an icon of everything that's wrong politically in this nation. You are actively working against me. You have bad intentions. And he goes to that man and cares for him. Do you see the radical inclusiveness of Jesus? Do you feel that challenge that is so against the narrative of our world? Unfortunately, the, um, specifically, the American evangelical church has co-opted what our very traditions and scriptures would say are the ways of the world. Which is when you don't agree with someone, you throw stones at them until they're silent. And Jesus goes and heals this man's boy. What do you make of that? What do you do with that? See, when we say that we're a church where everyone's welcome, every ethnicity and culture, orientation, wherever you are in your faith journey, wealthy and poor, and every political background. You want to know the hardest one for me right now is the political background part. There are people in this church that you disagree with me and I disagree with you about very important things. And yet, ostracizing each other, demonizing one another, and crucifying each other are just not options. You know, you know, the example of Jesus is we walk toward one another and we seek each other's healing. Let that challenge you. 
Jesus shows compassion and healing to that guy. Now, we need to note, Jesus did not co-opt his convictions. Okay? He didn't say, you have a different take on it than I do, and we're probably both right or we're both wrong, or who knows, and what is truth, and we can't tell anyone. He didn't do that. He held his convictions firmly, and he held them generously. He did not call injustice justice. He did not call evil good. He did not call oppression tolerable. And yet he didn't dehumanize the person standing right in front of him. What would it look like if you followed his example? How do you do that? How do you even begin to access him? This official would have been the easiest person for Jesus to villainize. And yet he cared for him. And here's a possibility of how Jesus did that. I'm not exactly sure, but as I've studied this passage over the years, one of the things you notice when you take this particular passage in light of the other scriptures we have about Jesus' life is he always goes toward the bigger picture of that person's story. You know, and this is um, later on in John chapter 4, what we read today. Earlier in this passage, he meets this woman at the well who had had many husbands, which was a big no-no back then. He sees a woman with a story and has compassion on her, time and again. I wonder if he could look at this centurion and not say, what's wrong with you, but rather, what happened to you that allows you, enables you, to live the life you're living, to make the choices you're making, to do the things you do? Everyone has a story shaped by past hurts and experiences. And when you can enter into the story, it grows empathy. In the phenomenal book, Unbroken, about the story of Louis Zamperini, who was an Olympian, who was in a plane in World War II that went down over the Pacific Ocean. He lived, he, at the time, the lo survived the longest amount of times in a little tiny lifeboat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, finally found land, was captured by the Japanese military, went to a prisoner of war camp, and the head sergeant, Watanabe, at the war camp, knew who he was and made it his own mission to destroy Louis Zamperini. And in this book chronicles the torture, the isolation, the degradation, all of it for days, for weeks, for months. And it almost broke him. And later, when D-Day happened and the prisoners were released and he was nursed back to health, Louis actually became a Christian like a bona fide Christian, and saw, looking at Jesus, was able to say, if he can forgive me, who's the hardest person in my world to forgive? And he thought, it's that sergeant that made my life hell for years. And he actually ended up taking out a page in a major newspaper, writing an open letter, forgiving him. But he was able to say, I wonder what happened to him that made him so inhumane, to see his story, which turned into empathy. Just try that this week with the person you can stand the least. Just get curious about their story. Now, I also get, I feel like I have to give all these caveats. If they still have the hammer in their hand, you need to protect yourself, right? You have to have healthy boundaries. So this is kind of a both-and thing, where you both set up realistic boundaries, whatever protection you need, while allowing your hearts to be curious so that you don't become inhumane. We see this 
obviously in the way our society has discourse as we are more politicized, polarized than ever. Perhaps the hardest work we have in these times is loving people that we feel are supporting a politic that is destroying this nation. And that's true wherever you are on the political spectrum. Both sides do it to each other. And we say, if you want truth, you don't look right and you don't look left, you have to go deeper because that's where God's actually at work. A new way of moving forward together. He gives us a way toward common dignity, which leads toward common understanding, which could be a main ingredient in common unity in our nation. A whole new way of being in society. And it's not only in that political realm. This official, royal official also becomes a picture of anybody with power in your life who's treating you wrong. An unreasonable boss. An unapproachable neighbor. A person with power who has wronged you and others. And you have a choice of how you respond. Will you simply mimic their behavior back to them? Will you objectify those you disagree with? Or will we seek to see God's image in every face? Much more nuanced, much more difficult. It's way easier to live in black and white, right and wrong. You're on the good side, they're on the... That's way easier, but that just doesn't line up with life. This is the way of deeper compassion. This is the way that Christians live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven right here in real time right now as a citizen of your nation. Being a Christian should actually make you a better citizen of your country because you actually care for the good of all. I was having this conversation with a friend this week who checks in and out of Renewed Church every now and then. He thinks much more politically minded than I do because he traffics in it at a much higher level. But he said, this is what we need some sort of common understanding where each person can kind of have this vision of goodness or flourishing or wholeness, not just for their own tribe, but for everybody, including those who are different than them. And I smiled as I said, Christians actually have a deeper foundation. Because our bedrock actually instructs us that the person across from you is created in the image and likeness of God. A divine image bearer. As much as God says to you, I love you and I know you, God says the same thing to them, like it or not. A whole new pathway for empathy. Now, as I said, this is so difficult. It's so nuanced. We speak and we act for justice in this world. We lend our voices to people who don't have a voice in society. We move from the center with privilege to the outsides for people who are left out and left behind. And we do it without dehumanizing people who are against us. How do you do that? Thoughtfully, prayerfully, do not try that without the gospel. I mean, how do you really access all of this? Because if all you have is a pastor telling you, don't worry, no matter how bad it gets, you can have hope. Or don't worry, no matter how much you disagree with them, you can have peace with them. You will exhaust yourself out and rightfully become bitter and cynical. Don't try this without the gospel. And here's what's maybe the sneaky part 
of where John the gospel writer sneaks in a layer to the sign. It says in the beginning, when two days were over, he went to that place in Galilee. When two days were over. So in other words, on the third day. When Jesus provided the wine at the wedding in Cana, it begins, on the third day, he went to the wedding at Cana. What else happened on the third day? We see on Good Friday, Jesus taking the pain, the sickness, the sorrow, even to the point of death itself. Taking all the hopelessness down on his shoulders. Taking all the injustice upon his body as he becomes a victim of an unjust trial, a victim of a corrupt state, colluding with corrupted religious officials, and it all crashes on him on the cross. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead, saying, give me your pain, your sorrow, your hopelessness, your injustice. Do your worst to me. I will drink it to the bottom, and still I will rise with the power of God's renewal. That is resurrection hope. That enables Christians to face what you go through on a daily basis, knowing that God holds all of it in his hands and will see you through. He is the king of comfort. He is the prince of peace. And note how the official responds. We'll end with this. The official realizes if he really is the son of God with power over creation, this is not the kind of person you just buzz into your office when you need a little advice. That you by and large ignore while you live the rest of your life. And then you just kind of call him when you need to phone a friend for some advice or get you out of a jam. And this official who is used to commanding, this official doesn't ask anybody for anything. He tells them. But when he goes to Jesus, he doesn't command him. He doesn't even ask him. He begs him. He said, I know you could do something about this. But I'm going to need to put ultimate trust in you. I'm going to need to give myself to you, to surrender myself to you in a way that I've never surrendered myself before to anybody. This is going to be a tremendous leap. This is why we gather every Sunday to re-surrender our lives to this big story. But it's a process. Because it says twice in this scripture that the Roman official believed. First, verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and started on his way. There's this aspect of belief. Enough belief to move his feet. Enough belief to change his direction. Enough belief to take a step. Literally, take a step. But later, when the servants come to him and say, your son is, is alive and he's well, your son will live, it says, and so the official believed, along with this whole household. So at what point did the official believe? When he started going on the journey or when he saw the fruit of it? And the answer is yes. Faith is a journey. What does it look like for you to take the next step toward belief? toward trust. It's a process. 
Take that step today. Let him give you hope in the midst of your distress. Let him flood you with his peace and then push you to pursue peace with others. Receive his resurrection life and reflect it to others today. Let's pray. Gracious God, in this second sign, we see Jesus moving towards someone who maybe none of us would want to move toward. Which shows us that your grace and your love are wider than we could even imagine. There is nobody who is off limits, no one who's out of bounds, nothing we have done or failed to do that could separate us from your love. And so now we pray that your Holy Spirit would convince us of that and draw us to you. Send us out with hope, even as we lament. Send us out in peace, even as we face discord. We pray that you would renew the face of the earth, starting with us. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.